I muted it so I could whisper to my wife. <laughs> I was all ready to get up here and, uh, and mention how I had crafted the, perhaps the greatest sermon title of my career, and then I sat down next to my wife and noticed that I had mistyped it <laughs> in, the, in your bulletin. It's a prickle of porcupines. And also, I typed the word porcupine so much this week that I can no longer say it properly, so forgive me. Um, this is the last sermon in our series going through Colossians, and we have been looking at this book, and the overall theme we have found is that Paul is writing to a church in order to convince them to give their complete loyalty to Jesus and to fully commit and to and live out his approach to life, his resurrection life in which we live without fear of death and without fear of competition and, and all of the stressors that come with feeling like our lives are limited commodities. Last week, we finished the closing remarks that he makes to the whole church, and now we get to the very last section in which he does the closing comments. He has some passages, to, some messages to pass along from individuals with him to individuals at the church and vice versa, and, and, and connections to make both ways. And sometimes it can be hard to figure out what these notes mean for us. Like there's one passage in one of Paul's letters where he tells the peop, the Timothy to send him his scrolls, and, and he, he brings up something about owing a guy for a chicken. Like those are, what, what's the spiritual significance of that? I'm not sure. That's another sermon series. But today, as we're looking at the closing comments of Paul's letter to the Colossians, what I realized as I was studying is that we get, through these passages, a very compelling behind-the-scenes look at the first-generation church and what it was like to be a part of the church when the apostles were still alive and when they were still setting it up. And what did that original community look like? Because we want to be a church that reflects the way it was designed and built. And whereas in other passages we get Paul presenting to us his teachings about the church, here we get to see the nitty-gritty of how it functioned. We get to see the details, and some of them are not necessarily pretty. And so what we're going to do as we read this passage is we're going, I want you to look at this passage and kind of reflect on what does it reveal to us about what was going on in the church at the time. A lot of the things we're going to look at require you to know things from other passages. But if you read it in context from the whole New Testament, there's actually a lot that you can learn about what the early church was like. And it is very compelling for what it means for us to be a church today. So, for the final time uh, in, in Colossians, I will encourage you to have your New Testaments open to chapter 4 and to stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 7. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have become a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. 
For I testify for him about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. After this letter has been read to your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So as we read this passage in our modern context, it doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us, except that it's one of those readings that, um, where you have to stumble over some names, learn how to say Tychicus. Uh, so it doesn't reveal a lot to us, but what I want to look at is what would it have been like to someone who intercepted this letter. Let's say a Roman soldier intercepted this letter, and he read over it, and when he got to this part, what would have struck him about these notes that are being passed back and forth between Paul and the Colossian church? And the main thing that he would have observed, this random Roman pagan soldier, is that the church is a strange group of people. It is a very odd collection of people. Um, I, the original version of this was it's a bag of mixed nuts. We are just a strange group and we're all crazy, right? So the first place they would have noticed this was in seeing that the church includes all kinds of people which was very unusual back then. So you see this in the fact that Paul mentions Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who are Jews. They are among the circumcised. And then he mentions Epaphras, who was one of you, who's a Gentile from Colossae. You have to remember that Jews had been separated from Colossians by very sternly enforced segregation for centuries. It was the one thing Gentiles knew about Jews is that Jews don't get along with others. They stay away from Gentiles. They worship their one God and they think they're better than everybody. That was the reputation they had. There wasn't really a place where Jews who were still worshiping the God of Israel mixed with Gentiles. So the very fact that Paul is talking about a group of mixed Jews and Gentiles would have been shocking. It would have been like talking about a desegregated community in the deep south at the height of Jim Crow. It would have been shocking to find out that such a group existed. That would have been very powerful. Not only is it Jews and Gentiles, there's also evidence in here that it's men and women. Nympha is hosting the church a church in her home. Back then, it was not usual for women and men to worship together in any religion. In, among the Jews, the men would worship inside and the women would sit outside and listen through the door. And in the Gentiles would actually have separate religions so that you might like have priestesses of a men's religion, but you wouldn't have men and women worshiping the same gods in the same place. They would actually have gods that were particularly interest, like were, that women would go to, and they would have gods and worship services that men would go to, but they didn't typically worship together. So the fact that a woman is hosting a mixed group for a religious service in her home would have been very, very strange at the time. There's also evidence a Roman soldier wouldn't have noticed this, but someone who knew the characters involved would have noticed that this letter is written to a group that includes slaves and the well-to-do and people who own slaves. 
which was a, a very, very strange thing to happen and also potentially dangerous. Um, whenever you treat slaves like people, they get notions that they are people and it can destabilize slave-owning societies. And so the Romans tended to put those kinds of things down. So this is a, a, a unique collection of people that you would not find anywhere else in the Roman Empire. And especially if they read chapter, seven, or chapter 3, where Paul says, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. That is a list of groups that have fought wars in the 200 years before Paul wrote it. Lots of wars. Bloody wars. So what Paul is indicating is most likely the church already includes those kinds of people, all of those different groups. Except Scythians, they didn't actually technically exist anymore. They were just like the boogeymen that might come over the border from the far reaches of the Roman Empire and kill everybody. So part, it's partly practical that most of these groups exist in the church, but also saying, yeah, and anybody else. Even the boogeymen, even the scary people, the, the barbarians from across the borders, the rivers that we don't know. Um, they, in, church, in, in the church, they are all in Christ. That is a shockingly radical view of a gathering of people. Did not exist anywhere else. And in important ways, it still doesn't exist outside the church today. The next thing you would notice, this would be more getting into a person from Colossae who knew the people would notice from this group of notes that the church is full of broken people with sharp edges. The church is full of people who have failed in the past and people who will fail in the future. For instance, Paul mentions Mark, Barnabas's cousin. And if you are really familiar with the New Testament, you may know that Paul and Mark have a history. And it's not great. In Acts uh, chapter 15, we find out that Paul and Barnabas, who were missionary partners, they had a dispute because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along on a trip, but, Mark, but Paul did not want to because this man had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. So Mark had gone out to become a missionary and had abandoned the mission in a, in a compromising enough way that Paul was not willing to trust him again. It wasn't he, like got, he got deathly ill and had to go home, you know, for a legit, like it was something where Paul no longer felt he could trust Mark. So Mark had a significant failure in his past. And yet at this point, he is with Paul in Paul's community, wherever he is. We're not sure where Paul's in jail. He's either in Rome or I lean more towards Ephesus, but he's, he's in jail somewhere. He's got a community of believers and Mark is back with him. So Mark is a person who has failure in his past and is still part of the church, and Paul actually makes sure to tell them to welcome him. Okay? Another person that will come up later in the New Testament is Demas. Demas is someone who has failure in his future. Because in Paul's last letter that he wrote, it's in the Bible, in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. So the interesting thing about forming a community out of all kinds of people is you get people with all kinds of problems. With all kinds of brokenness, brokenness tends to leave sharp edges, and that's what the church ends up being made out of. That's why we don't normally like to make those kinds of communities. 
Because broken people get into conflict because they have sharp edges. Here's where I explain the title of this sermon. At the convention over the summer, um, Dr. Wes Wright gave the best image I've ever heard of the church. He said the church is like a group of porcupines huddling together for warmth. And a group of porcupines is called a prickle. So the church is a prickle of porcupines. We are people with sharp edges that are shoved close to each other. And what happens then? We poke each other. We cut each other. We get into conflict. And we have a tendency sometimes in churches like ours that that are really focused on trying to be like the New Testament church. Sometimes we'll imagine that the, uh, the New Testament church was perfect. The church has never been perfect at any point in its history. Even when Jesus was walking around with them, it was never perfect because it was full of people. And even the apostles had their conflicts. Um, the, the biggest conflict happening in Colossae has to do with this guy named Onesimus. We don't find anything else about him in Colossians other than his name. But if you read this in connection with the book of Philemon, which probably was sent in the same trip, They probably had a bundle of letters. Here's one to Colossae. Here's one to Philemon, who is probably an elder in the church in Colossae. Onesimus, who Paul just sent back to Colossae, is Philemon's escaped slave. It's also very likely that Onesimus stole from Philemon when he left. Whatever happened, Philemon and Onesimus are on the outs. They are in the church, and they are in conflict with each other. So much so that Paul writes a letter that became Scripture specifically to convince them to resolve that conflict. So this is one of those things where people say, guys, Onesimus is here, and it got awkward when he came in, right? Like, this was a conflict everybody knew about. There might have been wanted posters. We don't know, but it was, it was a conflict that everybody in the church knew about. There's other conflicts that happen between people in the church in the New Testament. For instance, the issue with Mark became such a a problem that Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul, the apostle of unity, the apostle to the Gentiles in this point, could not come to terms with Barnabas, and they had to split up. It says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Now, you can take that in one of two ways. You can take that as Paul failed. You could also take that as potentially uh, that, uh, evidence that sometimes the system is to peacefully coexist in separate tasks. Uh, but either way, th- this is a significant conflict that Paul himself got caught up into. And there's another one that we see where in Galatians, Paul talks about how Peter was, mis- was misrepresenting the gospel in the church. He showed a failing in leading the church because he, he was treating Gentiles differently, and Paul confronted him to his face. Can you imagine if I did that? If I just, in, in church, just called out a person and whew, low attendance the next week. <laughs> so what we see is the church was a strange group of people full of, of broken people, because that's the only kind of people that are available, and they're put together like a group of porcupines, sticking each other and causing all kinds of conflict. The question is, how can a group like that possibly exist? If you look at all the societies that existed in the Roman Empire, and you don't believe in God, 
you don't believe that the Christians are right about God, the church would be the last, literally the last society that you would think would still exist 2,000 years later. Because it has the least potential for people to get along and to work toward common purpose. How did they make it work? How can we keep such a strange group of people together? Well, in this passage, we get some indication of what Paul is teaching them to do in order to be that kind of a congregation. The first thing that they need to do is to read Scripture and listen to their teachers. Now, to be clear, as I talk about listening to your teachers, I am including myself in the group of the taught. Because while I do teach here, I am also taught here. So this is not everybody needs to listen to me. This is we all need to listen to the people who teach us. Because this is what's happening in, the, in this letter. First of all, he says, after this letter has been read to your gathering, also re- have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. They're reading scripture in church. They're reading instructions from the apostles. They make it an exercise to learn from the apostles what their church is supposed to look like. Because there is an expectation that the church is meant to fit a particular design. And the interesting thing is that design is not like do three songs and then do a communion meditation and then have... It's not that kind of design. It's the design for the kinds of relationships that we have. And the way we welcome people into the congregation and the way we treat each other. And there is a design that we are supposed to learn. And we learn that, first of all, from Scripture. Why Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that the emphasis on the use of scripture is not on precisely defining accurate doctrine and coming up with the the most accurate statement of faith. Scripture does communicate truth, but what Paul is talking about here is that it is useful for making us into godly people right? It is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that you can be equipped for every good work. We are meant to learn not just facts from scripture, not even primarily facts from scripture, but the primary thing we're supposed to learn is how to live the way God calls us to live. Now, the facts of the revelation of God, the facts of the life and ministry of Jesus and his death and resurrection are essential to that. But I spent a lot of time knowing all the facts and not living it out, and that was not the way God had called me to be. I was, when I was a kid, I was a Bible Joe champion in like three different churches simultaneously, and I was also one of the worst kids in each youth group. <laughs> That's not the goal. But it's not just reading Scripture, um, because you can't just sit in an ivory tower on your own and read Scripture. In fact, Scripture has never, the New Testament has never been without teachers to explain it. Certainly not the letters of Paul, because one of the things we find, and we know, uh, Bible scholars will tell you, is that when Paul sent a letter, this is a regular practice, writing was expensive, so he would write the letter, and then he would hand it to someone who had been there with him when he wrote it, and he would make sure that they could explain and answer any questions people might have about the text. Phoebe is the one who is sent to do that with the book of Romans. 
And in this book, that is Tychicus and Onesimus. He says, I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts, which is a main focus of the letter. He is coming with Onesimus, who is one of you, and they will tell you about everything here. That language says that these are the authorized messengers who are supposed to, they may even have been expected to read it. And then as people had questions, they will explain what Paul meant. You know, there's actually a verse in, in one of Peter's letters that says that Paul is hard to understand. Paul has been hard to understand since the first generation, and so there were people there who would explain it. Interestingly, Paul picked an escaped slave. Onesimus was going to have to go back to the church being an escaped slave and stand up front and speak to them about what this letter meant. And Philemon was going to have to listen and learn. See, Scripture tells us that he, uh, Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Again, the emphasis is on our maturity as Christians in our behavior, how we live in the world, how we build the community that Christ intends for human beings to live in. It's not facts. It's not simply facts. It's the facts that are relevant to the way we live according to God's design. And so we don't get there by sitting in an ivory tower and reading the Bible. Even reading the Bible, you're relying on a community of scholars who translated it and the people who wrote any of the resources you used to understand it. But we have to do this together. And we have to listen to the people that God has put in place to teach us. Every one of us has to do that, including me. So that's the first thing, because this kind of community does not come naturally to anyone. If it came naturally, everybody would do it, and Jesus wouldn't have had to come to make it happen. So we have to learn. The second thing we have to do is we have to actually create a community of reconciliation. We have to create patterns in our community of how we treat each other, because we have to know what kind of relationships we have with each other, Paul says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of God to which you were called in one body rule in your hearts and be thankful. Those instructions are for a pattern of living, a, a, a set of characteristics of a community that are radically different from everywhere else you may be. There is no other place where you are expected to forgive. There are a lot of places where you are encouraged not to, where you are encouraged to hold on to grudges and to blame and to hate and in the church, we are expected to forgive. We are expected to bear with. You know that when you, when you spill it off from a Christian community just because you can't stand the other people, even if those people are doing something wrong, the idea to just respond by breaking off is, is often sinful. Now, there are all kinds of things that happen in conflicts. I'm not saying every time someone's left a church, it's been sinful. I have left a church before. Um, 
for reasons that would be, don't get into in a sermon. But the point is that in general, like that our, our practice is meant to be bearing with people. Being a community where people can make mistakes and be forgiven. And people will know that they have that safety. People, because if somebody makes a mistake and they don't think they're going to be forgiven, they're not coming back, right? We need to be a community where people know they will be forgiven. Know that they will, that people will bear with them. Know that if, if your singing isn't great, you can still sing during worship and the seats around you won't be mysteriously empty. That's the kind of community we need to be. The next thing we need to do, the next way that we keep a community like this going, according to Paul, is by avoiding people who are in conflict. No, don't write, I'm joking, it's not avoiding, (laughs) by reconciling people who are in conflict. You wanted me to say avoiding, didn't you? I wanted to say avoiding. I don't like to deal with conflict. I, don't, I, I avoid it as much as I can. I, my instinct is to either not talk about it and pretend it's not there or just disappear from the situation. I am not naturally drawn to dealing with conflict. But what we find is that resolving conflict is a practice of the gospel. Blessed are the peacemakers. There's a kind of a cryptic comment that Paul makes at the end of this section. He says, tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. We were talking in our Sunday school class this morning about differentiating between what the Bible says and how we make sense of it. This is me making sense of this passage, a possible explanation. Okay, possible. Not saying this is what's going on. But there is a a compelling theory for what Paul is talking about with Archippus. Because the one thing we know about Archippus is that Archippus is... A, fa- a close family member with Philemon. Probably his brother. In the letter to the Philemon, it mentions him in the household of Philemon. Paul is vague about what he's telling Archippus to do. Paul is also intentionally vague in the letter of Philemon when he's telling Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. Because that is a dangerous thing to tell a master to do in a slaveholding society. To tell him to forgive someone that he technically has the right to execute on site. That is a dangerous thing to say. So Paul is vague. He's clear enough that you know what he's saying, but also uh, uh, opaque enough that he could get it past the Romans. And And it's kind of a similar tone with which he's speaking to Archippus. And it's entirely possible that the ministry that Archippus has is to help encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus. It is entirely possible that this is Paul's cue to Archippus. That's your role. You need to come along Philemon and help him do something hard. Again, I don't know that that's true. I know that that is consistent with who the church is supposed to be. So here's the interesting thing. Do you know, it's, the story between Paul and Barnabas is fascinating, and my wife is the one who pointed this out to me. There was a moment when Paul it was in need of reconciliation with the church because he started out as a persecutor of the church. And you don't just say, hey, I literally saw the light. Now I'm a Christian. Everybody trust me. And it happens. They were understandably skeptical. And so Paul, after some time doing ministry, he goes to Jerusalem. 
It says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. And then someone steps in to stand between them. You know who it is? It's Barnabas. Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had uh, talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was a reconciler. Which is interestingly the same role he was playing when he and Paul got into the fight over Mark. Barnabas is a reconciler. And this is something that we are meant to do, being peacemakers in the church, because we believe that all people can be saved, all people can be redeemed, and all people can be reconciled. And unfortunately, sometimes, this is something that I've learned a lot from events over the Northwest Christian Network, because hap- we've had events that refer to it several in a row. This idea that conflict is not, does not having con- the presence of conflict does not mean that your church is in trouble. Sometimes we think, usually we think that conflict is an obstacle and we need to get the conflict out of the way in order to move forward. And sometimes that means that we try and remove the people who who are holding on to the conflict or we just avoid it, we pretend it's not happening because we think Christians don't have conflict. That's not the case because we're still porcupines. And if we weren't porcupines, then our whole argument that you need Jesus wouldn't be true. If we reach a point where we don't need Jesus to stay together, then what we're preaching is no longer true. In reality, the evidence of trouble in your congregation is when there's conflict that you won't deal with. Because the gospel doesn't teach us that there shouldn't be conflict in this life. The gospel teaches us that that conflict can be resolved through the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So as a church, we should not avoid conflict. We should not avoid people who are in conflict with us because if we really, truly, down to our bones, believe in the power of Jesus to reconcile us and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to draw his people together, then those conflicts are actually an opportunity for discipleship. They are an opportunity for growth. They are an opportunity for us as individuals and for those relationships to become stronger in Christ than they were before. This happened recently in my family where we talked through a a conflict that was happening. And as we prepared to have the conversation, um, we talked about instead of focusing on all the ways this could go wrong, let's focus on the ways it could go right. What can God do in this situation if we're open to it? And some really amazing things happened in that conversation. Our goal is not to avoid conflict. We, are meant, we have the tools through Jesus Christ to resolve conflict, and that's a major part of the hope of the gospel. Another thing that Paul tells the church in Colossae to do, and other churches, is that they need to embrace redeemed people. Embrace redeemed people. We've already seen this when Paul, Paul's writing to the Colossians, and he's writing to the Colossians because they're in his orbit. They're a Pauline church, right? And that means they probably know about Mark, and they probably knew about Mark when Mark was on the outs. And Paul writes to them and says, hey, Mark is coming. Welcome him. 
Somehow Paul and Mark put things back together. And because that has been reconciled, Paul, uh, Mark needs to be embraced. We have a tendency to not really ultimately move past conflict and flaws in people. But that embracing of people, of the, of the people who are redeemed just like we are, is a really important practice of the church. In fact, it, when Paul vaguely tells Philemon that he wants him to forgive his runaway slave, the way he puts it is he says, if you consider me a partner, welcome him. That word actually means embrace. Embrace him as you would me. Now, I want you to think, I have no idea what this would be like, but what would happen if the Apostle Paul bodily walked through those doors right now? It would be be a big deal. Now, we don't have a personal relationship with Paul, so we we may not be as personally invested, but imagine how much you would want to talk to him. How much you would want to, you know, be connected with him. And Paul says, that's how you're supposed to react to the people that you've been in conflict with. That's how you're supposed to react to the people who have been redeemed out of really broken places and are still carrying that brokenness in a lot of ways. Paul writes to the Roman church who they have at least two significantly different ways of doing the faith. There are Jewish Christians who are continuing to practice the law of Moses and there are Gentile Christians and probably also some some Hellenistic, some Greek-speaking Jews who are no longer practicing the law, and they consider that an important part of their Christian identity, that they have outgrown the law. And Paul is a Christian who believes you don't have to keep the law. But he writes to those people who are not practicing the law. He says, welcome one another, or embrace one another, as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. He is speaking to the Romans who agree with him about the Romans who don't agree with him, who have a different way of doing the faith and different theological ideas. And he says, welcome them, embrace them the way Jesus Christ does. I want you to imagine that after you die, you're standing in the greeting line at heaven next to Jesus. And Jesus embraces everybody as they come in. What kind of gall would it take for you to see Jesus embrace somebody and then go, sorry. Like for, as you watch the people that Jesus embraces and you're looking at going, that, I'm glad to see you, but you, nope. Mm -mm." And that's what we do, isn't it? Paul says, no, if God embraces them, you should embrace them. Which is an insanely difficult thing to do. Because I don't care how extroverted you are, hugging your enemies, hugging people you don't get along with doesn't come naturally to anyone. That's why the last thing that we find that goes throughout the book of Colossians is lots of prayer. Paul starts out the letter by talking about how he, he has not stopped praying for the Colossians. And in chapter 4, he talks about Epaphras who is praying so diligently for his home church that Paul calls it wrestling. And in between them, remember, he has asked the Colossians to pray for him. It's this cycle of mutual prayer. Everybody is praying for each other because reconciliation is hard. And it does not come naturally to any of us. Being the church is the most inhuman thing you can do, in a way. In our broken nature, it is the most unnatural thing for you to do. 
In terms of the people we're supposed to be, it is the most natural. But that's why it requires so much prayer. This is who the Colossians are meant to be, and this is who we are meant to be. So I'm going to ask the praise team to come up as I close, and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. First question is, have you joined the prickle of porcupines? And as you, as you picture that, I want you to remember to picture yourself as a porcupine, because we all have quills. Right, like you're not like a Labrador in the prickle of porcupines. We are all porcupines, but there is hope for us in Jesus Christ that this prickle of porcupines can work. It is only through Christ that we can be the kinds of people that God called us to be. Question number two is how can you be less prickly? Because while we are all prickly, we are all porcupines. We do believe, and Scripture tells us, that God can make us less prickly. He transforms us to be that kind of community of people who forgive each other. Is that a priority for you? To be that kind of a person? How can it be a priority for you to be less prickly? And finally, how can you help bring porcupines together? either through the way you contribute to the culture of this church, by the way you greet new people you haven't met before, or in the way you get involved in bringing reconciliation to the relationships of people around you. Because we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to do the hard work of bringing porcupines closer together. And every one of us has a role to play. And if you look, I bet you will see opportunities around you to play that role in your family, in your circles of friends, in the church. So I want you to consider what is your role in building this kind of community? What is God calling you to do today, this week, this coming year? And then commit to taking that action. I'll ask you to consider that as we stand and sing our final song.